when I came and sat back down, one of my kids asked, so was that the sermon? Is it over? Sorry. So sorry. I'm gonna keep preaching. Y'all, um, we're so glad to have you here with us. Um, we are starting a sermon series this, uh, well, we, Clay started last, last week. I'm getting to, to start out uh, in this sermon series that we're calling Psalms in the Key of Life. That may sound like a Stevie Wonder album to you. It is. I love Stevie Wonder. But one of the, one of the reasons that we've called our, our sermon series this is because the Psalms really do hit on all the different keys and emotions that we experience in life. And today we're going to consider what the Psalms say to us and what God says to us through the Psalms about our fear. So let's give our attention now to God's word. We'll be in Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we ask that now as we, as we come to your word that you would teach us Help us to see our need for grace and help us to see your great provision of grace through your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen. So this morning, as I said, we're going to be considering the subject of fear and I've got three points for you this morning from this Psalm. First, worldly fear. Second, the fearless God. And then third, godly fear, okay? Worldly fear, fearless God, godly fear. Psalm one and two really are like introductory psalms to the whole rest of the Psalter, as it's called. And in Psalm one, which Clay preached on so well last week, we find out that there is a blessing that comes from abiding in the word of God. That there, the blessed man is one who abides in the law of the Lord, that that man or woman becomes like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in season, it does not wither. Psalm two also describes a blessing. Psalm one begins with the word blessing, blessed are, all those. And then Psalm two ends with a blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In, and who is the him? The him in this story is the king. There's a blessing 
and taking refuge in this one in Psalm 2 who's, who is described as the Son of God or the Anointed One, which in Hebrew is, would be the word Messiah, or in Greek would be where we get the word Christ. So this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ, there is a blessing in finding refuge in him, according to Psalm 2. Why is this such a blessing, to find refuge in the Messiah or in the Christ? And I think it's because what Psalm 2 presents to us is a world that is scary. We live in a, we live in a frightening world. Just consider some of the words that the poet uses to create this foreboding tone in the psalm for us. Words like rage, plot, wrath, terrify, fury, fear, trembling, perish. And our problem that we struggle with is that in the face of, in the face of rage, in the face of plotting, in the face of fear, we seek to find refuge in things other than God. We actually begin to trust ourselves. Psalm one opens with this question in verse, in verse one. Psalm two opens with this question in verse one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is our world so chaotic? so topsy-turvy. And we've experienced this, have we not? We, we know what this is like. To, to live in a world where a small, unseen virus can completely change what it's like to live in our world. Our world is that fragile. We live in, we live in a world where one world leader can unleash the chaos of war by deciding to invade another country or to start a nuclear war or to engage in chemical warfare. Our world is so fragile and that is scary. But we also experience this instability in our own individual lives where like, one bad interview, one bad grade, one bad date feels like it can change the trajectory of your life. One unseemly tweet or one old photograph can come back to haunt you or even cancel you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is the question in verse one and questions, or the, the answer we find in verse two and three. They're plotting because they are seeking, we see, to burst the bonds of the Lord's anointed apart to cast away their cords from us. The peoples are plotting and raging because they are seeking their own interests. In the face of a scary world and a fearful world, they decide to burst the bonds of the Lord and to begin trusting themselves. Martin Luther described the book of Psalms as a mini Bible. That there is a, a retelling of the whole big story of the Bible, even within the Psalms. And you can hear that here in Psalm 2. In, in Genesis 1, Adam is called to be a king 
or to be king-like, better said, to rule under the rule of God and God's word. God gives him a word to obey. Adam is called to obey under God's word. Think about Psalm 1. To abide in God's word, but then to rule and to have dominion over all that creeps on the earth, over all the fish and the birds, to subdue it and to have dominion. And Adam is called into this kind of kingly rule. But we see, as you know, maybe know the story, in Genesis 3, Adam rejects the rule of God. He rejects the word of God and he seeks to rule himself, as does Eve, following their own perceptions. But what this, what this ends up doing is it causes Adam and Eve to have to live in fear, trusting their own perceptions, looking to themselves for their own security, and to enter into a world filled with thorns, thistles, pain, and death. What do you fear? What is it that you fear? That you're tempted to to manage yourself out of your own fear. Maybe, maybe you fear being the victim of violence or maybe you fear something happen, happening to your children or going to war or that somehow the government is going to take away your livelihood by making it impossible to do your business. Or maybe you fear Chinese balloons or maybe you fear that you won't be as awesome as you've told that, been told that you should be your whole life. Or maybe you feel that the friendship bonds that you feel like you have actually aren't as strong as you think they are and you're going to be left out. Maybe you fear inadvertently making someone really angry on I-10. Maybe you fear, maybe you fear having your car broken into or stolen. Maybe you have the fear of missing out or my new favorite fear, the fear of better option. So you don't commit to anything. You're afraid that another option, a better option might come along. Perhaps you fear that your life is going to matter or that your children or grandchildren will be able to safely be a Christian in our country. Do you fear those things? If you do, my question is how do you manage those fears? How, how do you manage the fears that you bump up against. Because the way that we manage our fears tells a lot about where our trust is. Particularly think about if you are a Christian, how do you manage the fear of what, what it's going to be like to, to live in our culture? A culture that's becoming less and less friendly or positive towards Christians. What do we do? You know, there's all, there's all kinds of ways to manage how we engage with the world. One strategy that Christians have employed throughout the ages is to fortify against the world. Keep the world out. And we'll do our own Christian thing over here and fortify against the world. The problem with this is that when we do this, we cease doing what Jesus calls us to do, which is to be a salt and light in the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. 
Another strategy that Christians have employed is rather than fortify against the world is to fight it, to try to dominate it, to speak truth to the world with no grace and with no love. And and when we do this, when we only view our neighbor, our unbelieving neighbor as someone to be conquered or controlled, we cease to do what Jesus calls, which is to love our neighbor and to pray for those who persecute you. We've tried to fight, we've tried to fortify. Another strategy that Christians have employed throughout the ages is to assimilate. To, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. To become like the culture. To, rather than speak truth, only speak grace and love without truth. But when we do this again, we cease to be as salt and light to the world. We lose our distinctiveness. We have nothing to point them to, no hope to point them to. And I want you to see that all of these strategies, the strategy of fortifying, of fighting, or of acclimating, all of these are strategies where we trust ourselves. So what do we do? I think what we're invited to do here in this psalm is to look to God. To look to the God who is not afraid in the face of a world that is very much against him and his people. He's so not afraid that in verse four, the psalmist writes, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now you can read that and think to yourself, that sounds like a pretty heartless God. And we always have to translate and inter- or interpret scripture through the lens of the rest of the Bible. What we see in the rest of the Bible is that God is not dismissive of our fears. We see passages like 1 Peter 5, 7 that tell us to cast all your anxiety, cast all your fear on him because he cares for you. God cares deeply about our fears. So why in verse four is he looking at these fearsome nations who are plotting against his people? Why does he look at them and laugh? Well, it's because of what is said about him in verse four. He sits in the heavens. He is so far above all of what threatens us, of what we perceive as dangerous and undefeatable. And I think it's really easy for us in the modern world to just forget that, to forget how great God is. I was even thinking about this, I was listening to a podcast and it was talking about how light pollution, like, you know, like if you go outside and look in the sky because of the light pollution in, our, in cities, where most people in the world live now, when you look up into the skies, because of the light given off by our cities, we don't see the stars like we once did. And because of that, we don't feel our smallness in the same way that we once did for thousands of years, for the whole history of humanity. We're not reminded when we look into the night sky 
just how grand the cosmos are. Can I give you like one small reminder? This is one of my favorite little science facts. The largest star that we know of right now, which we have, the, you know, our scientists haven't scanned too much of the universe. But the largest star that we know of is a star called VY Canis Majoris, which I'm pretty sure translates big dog. <laughs> okay, this star, to give you an idea of how large it is, first I'm gonna start with Earth, okay? Earth, if Earth was a tiny ball and the sun was a larger ball, you could put one, about one million Earths inside of the sun. Just bloop, bloop, bloop. And if you did that at a rate of one second an Earth, just dropping the Earth into the sun, one second at a time, you know how long that would take you? How long a million seconds is? 11 and a half days. That's a lot of Earths to have to drop into the sun. All right, you ready for the big dog? Here's the big dog. Now I want you to imagine that you take that sun and you walk over to the big dog and it's a much larger ball, okay? It's eight billion times the size, not of Earth, but of the sun. It's eight billion times larger than the sun. Now imagine, just to give you an idea of how big that number is, eight billion, you start dropping the sun into the big dog star, one second at a time, bloop, bloop, bloop. You wanna know when, it, to be finishing right now, to be finishing today, do you know when you would have had to start? I did the maths, here we go. You think it's like a couple years ago maybe? 1762, that's how large a number eight billion is, okay? There is a star that's that much larger than our sun, which is so much larger than our earth. He who sits in the heavens and looks at us, not at us or his enemies, he who sits in the heavens and looks at his enemies who plot against him, who plan against him and his purposes, he laughs. He, is, he laughs because he's not threatened. It's like when I watched a couple middle school boys say that they could beat one of our volunteers in an arm wrestling match. It was hilarious. They tried together. And he's just sitting there with his arm propped up and he's laughing before they even start. And they're like, we're, we've been working out. We play football now. Like they think they can do it. And he laughs at them because he knows they're not going to budge him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. For all you Churchill fans out there, Churchill says, war is a game that is played with a smile. If you can't smile, grin. If you can't grin, keep out of the way until you can. He, he's, he's speaking the same truth here that a, a true leader and the, the leader that you truly want in a battle is one who is not afraid. And the picture that we're given here in Psalm 2 is that we have a fearless God who looks at all of the raging and the plotting against him, against his people, and he laughs. We need to remember the context of the Psalms. They were collected while the people were in exile in Babylon. 
under the thumb of the most powerful nation in the world, a nation that must have felt so undefeatable and intimidating, a nation that was oppressing them, and yet it was a nation on this tiny dot of a planet. On this tiny dot of a planet that this God had spoken into existence and who upholds by the word of his power. And so the Psalms are given to these people to remind them of who their God is. That even in the midst of their hardship, even in the midst of their turmoil, God is still at work. That his plan will be fulfilled. And so we see verse six, which in many ways is a, is a turning point because this is the first time that that God speaks. In verse six, he opens his mouth and he tells us what he determines to do. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This, uh, this psalm was most likely a coronation song for the kings of Israel. It would, be, it would be read during their coronation. Uh, it was likely written either for Solomon or one of his predecessors. And there's all kinds of threads, Old Testament threads dangling here in, in Psalm 2. One of them is what's said next to this king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Not only, not only is God setting his king on Zion, but God is determined, he's determined to set his son in Zion. And all throughout the Old Testament, God refers, he refers first to his people, Israel, as his son. We see this in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Israel's referred to as God's chosen people, but not only that, as his son. And the Davidic line of Israel, David's line, David's kingly line, is also referred to as God's firstborn son. And what we see here is that there is a present comfort that God is assuring his people that they are his child and that there is a firstborn child, a king, who is not going to be removed from his throne. And they're given this, they're, they're, this is collected during exile. So there's this present comfort that God is, give, is giving them saying, I am still at work. I am not afraid. I sit, I, I, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at those who think that they can somehow stop what, I, what I'm determined to do. But there's also a future comfort that there will be a king who will fully own every inch of the earth and will judge all the wrongdoing that those people are experiencing. See, God does not care. He, he's not flippant about the pain and the struggle, about the fear that we live in, he's not flipping about that. And he's not flipping about those who trade in fear. See, in this passage, he assures us that something is going to be done about that. This means that God's people need not be afraid, which is the most common command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Well, how do we do that? How do we stop being afraid of all the chaos, all the plotting, 
everything that's happening in our world, the way that we do that, it's a little counterintuitive. It sounds almost contradictory. The way that we stop being afraid of everything in the world is that we actually begin to fear something else. It's someone else. The solution to our fear is fear. The right fear. Godly fear. Final point. Therefore, O kings, be wise. We hear in verse 10. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The fear of the Lord will drive out the fear of this world. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. There's that command, don't fear. Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is one to fear. But the kind of fear that we're invited to experience with God is not a fear that would be repulsive to us. In fact, it's a kind of fear that causes us to want to draw near to him, so much so that you may even dare to kiss the son. As verse 11 says, it's a fear that draws us in. If you talk to somebody who loves skydiving, I don't love skydiving, I did it one time, check, done. But someone who loves skydiving, one of, they, they, if you say, like, do you love it? Yeah, I love it, I do it. I have a buddy who does it a lot. Like, he loves it, I do it all the time. Like, done it enough, now I don't have to have anyone strapped on my back. I love it, I love it. Aren't you afraid? Oh yeah. I'm afraid of it, but I love it. There's an excitement. There's something that actually draws, there's a, there's a majesty and a greatness to it that draws the person in. If you talk to someone who's like a, works with lions, a zoologist, someone at the zoo here in Houston, do you love lions? Yes. Are you afraid of them? Oh yeah. Being afraid of something doesn't necessarily mean that it repulses you. I even see this, I have the best seat in the house when, uh, when there's a wedding and I'm gonna do the wedding. It's so fun to stand there next to the groom. And when you watch the groom, there is, there is a holy fear that comes over him when his bride approaches him. There's probably a lot of fear going on with that guy for a lot of different reasons. But there is, there is a true, I believe, holy fear that he experiences as his bride nears him. So much so that if you, if you watch the groom many times as they're, as they're you know, dabbing their eyes and weeping, they struggle to actually look her in the face because of her radiance and her beauty. And, and they tremble in her presence out of delight because of her, her awesome radiance. This is the kind of fear, this is a, just a scent of the kind of fear that we see people have as they experience God and who he really is. Think about the way that the throne room of heaven is depicted in the Bible. You've got these creatures called seraphim, which when they're described sound really scary. 
All, they've got all kinds of like wings and claws and eyes. But when these seraphim are in God's presence, they cover their eyes. They tremble in fear of the one true living God. When Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God, it is not boring in Isaiah 6. It's like an explosion goes off. There is an earthquake. It's an ear-piercing, bone-shattering, spine-tingling experience. And Isaiah falls on his face and says, woe is me, I'm undone. He falls on his face in fear before the true and living God who is over all things. And when we fear the Lord, we gain the knowledge of who holds the real power in our world and we cease or we can begin to cease to fear weaker powers. When we fear the Lord, we gain the wisdom of who actually can help us in our smaller fears. This psalm is, uh, is quoted later in a prayer from the early church in Acts chapter four. It's actually right after they bump into something scary, to something fearsome. Peter and John, two of their leaders, are captured and beaten because they've been preaching the good news of Jesus. They're beaten and then they're threatened. They're threatened by the same people who crucified Jesus. They're threatened to shut their mouths about him. And listen to what's said about these Christians after Peter and John come back and tell them, come back bleeding, by the way come back bleeding and tell them what has happened. And they heard it and they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, wrote by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed and they continue praying. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You hear that? That they see their bloody friends walk back and they pray to God. They pray to the one whom they recognize as king over all, whom they recognize as the one who did through the plotting and raging of kings like Herod and rulers like Pontius Pilate, who through their plotting brought about his plan that he was determined to do. They couldn't stop his plan from happening. He who sits in the heavens laughs at anyone stopping his plan from happening. But this is what is so beautiful about his plan. He stepped into it. He stepped into the plan. This God who reveals himself to be fearsome is also so accessible. There's this really curious 
thing that's done at the end of this passage when it says kiss the son, that word son, you would, the, the original readers would have expected to hear the Hebrew word ben, which is the words, Hebrew word for son. But instead they, hear, they would have heard the word bar, which is Aramaic for the word son. These Gentile kings are being addressed and they're told that there is one you cannot stop. His plan is going to happen. But Gentile kings, in your language, we want to tell you to kiss that son. He is accessible. He actually welcomes you, Gentile, to take refuge in him. How can we take refuge in him? We can take refuge in him because this fearsome God ultimately did become a man. He fulfilled Psalm 2. And all the kings that plotted against him from Herod to Pilate and Caiaphas the high priest, all their plotting and consorting against the anointed and against the Messiah, God still fulfilled his plan in verse 6 to set his king on a hill. But that hill was Calvary. He set his king on the hill of Calvary. And there at Calvary, Jesus was crowned as king. But his crown was one of thorns. The very thorns that were brought about from the first king's rebellion, Adam. And Jesus, the new Adam, is set on the hill of Calvary. And remember what was written over him? in the language of all the nations, written not only in Hebrew, but also also in Latin and also in Greek, so all the nations could understand. Do you remember what was set over him? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus fulfills Psalm 2. He is the Son of God who feared God and abided by his law. He is the Son who is coming again with a rod of iron to shatter the oppressive powers that rage against him and his people. He is also the king who, though he laughs in the face of his opposition, also welcomes his opposition to find a refuge in him. Do you see how that psalm ends? The peoples are welcome to find refuge in this king. You cannot find refuge from him because he's coming. He's the king but you can find refuge in him. Ask him for it. He gives it to any who would come to him in faith and ask and he gives it graciously. He welcomes you to be bound by his cords and his yoke. But consider what it is to be bound by him. This fearsome God tells us, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my cords upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will not find rest for your souls managing your fears on your own. You will find anxiety, you will find insecurity and a never-ending chase for something to build your life on. Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes you to find refuge in him. Let's pray. O you great shepherd of the sheep,
You who, um, as the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. You who are king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, king of the world, we thank you. We pray that you would meet us in our fears, that you would help us to fear you and nothing else. And we pray that like the church in Acts 4, that you would embolden us, embolden us to speak the word of truth with grace to our neighbors, not to assimilate to them or to fortify against them or to, to fight them, but rather, like you, Lord, help us to love them, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We pray that we would do this for your glory and your namesake, in Jesus' name, amen.